Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for being with us today for some Torah learning on honey bees and Torah. That's something we need in our life today. Um, uh, this opportunity for some sweet Torah learning with Rabbi Amal Yahas, who is a Jewish food and climate educator who loves teaching about bees and honey, among many other topics as well. She serves as the director of spiritual engagement at the Beth Shalom Congregation in Providence, Rhode Island, and works as a chaplain with the Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're gonna explore how are honeybees portrayed in biblical and later Jewish sources? Why is honey even kosher in the first place? What is the status of other hive products? Bee pollen, propolis, royal jelly. Join Rabbi Amal Yahas, and we will be studying this together. So thank you for being here, Rabbi Haas. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to learn with your community. Um, it's a huge honor. Um, and uh, I really do love teaching about bees. And uh, just wanted to um, start out by just sharing a bit of the fundamentals. Um, so, as Jews, we tend to get really focused on bees for about two months of the year, Elul and Tishrei, um, because honey obviously has a, a huge role in our annual holiday cycle at that time of year. But sometimes we don't always step back and take the bigger picture, which is basically there are five species of honeybees um, in, the, in the world but there are actually 4,000 species of native bees in North America. And there are 20,000 species of native bees worldwide. And um, native bees play a really critical role in pollination, meaning um, the process by which the flowers of plants are able to reproduce their seeds and create fruits and vegetables and also ensure the continuation of um, the plant species. And many of the native bees that are out there, which we don't pay much attention to because they don't produce honey for us, um, but many of them have a unique and exclusive relationship with one flower. And that flower and that pollinator have co-evolved. Um, so when we protect habitat, we are actually protecting those unique relationships that are part of um, God's creation. And um, pollinators worldwide are actually in decline. Some of them um, have, have already, um, we no longer have them. And, and that's due to habitat loss because of human encroachment on nature areas, because of monocrop um, mega farming because of pesticide use. So even though honeybees are the most visible bees, I, before I dive into sort of the whole topic of bees and honey, I, I do want to highlight that, um, that they are not the most important, even though honey is very special. Um, um, so that's, that's a, a backup on the big picture of, of native bees. Um, then I also want to share with you that, that most of us really primarily think about honey and beeswax when we think of bees, um, but there are actually eight products that come from a beehive. Um, there's also nectar of which honey is made and pollen, which is also part of honey. Then there's bee bread. Bee bread is a mashup of pollen and nectar fermented um, and stored as a food for developing bees, meaning the larvae of bees are fed bee bread. And it's, it was coined with that name because it's so fundamental for the development of the hive. Then there's propolis, which is um, a product that the bees collect from, um, from tree sap and um, they take the tree sap and they make it into this very sticky um, uh, substance that's basically the immune system for the hive. And I have um, many uh, Russian Jews who come to me to, to buy propolis 
Um, it traditionally, it, it's used by the Russian Jews to heal tooth pain. Um, and it's used by, in, in a lot of other places for, for other medical treatments. There's also royal jelly. Um, and uh, that's produced actually um, by uh, a gland in the, the head of the bee. And it's got a, a many um, sort of amazing nutritive um, uh, qualities. Um, it's, it's sometimes been used to increase human fertility. Um, it's believed to have that quality. And then bee venom um, is obviously from the sting. And believe it or not, that also has many healing qualities. And um, there are um, some beekeepers that harvest bee venom um, for healing. Um, and there's a field called apotherapy, which is the use of, of um, hive products for, for improving human health. So that's an overview. There's a lot more that comes out of the hive than we realize. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't turn to the question of why um, honey is so appropriate for Rosh Hashanah, since it is a big part of how we relate to it as Jews. Um, in, uh, <clears throat> in Tehillim, it says, the Torah is more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey. And Likutei Hilchot Zvachim from Rav Yisrael Meir Cohen says, why does the text say sweeter than honey? Um, and he writes, because it's known that in nature there exists a power to honey that if another object like bread or wine falls into it, they'll eventually um, transform into honey. They'll dissolve, the honey will kind of absorb and transform them. And that's why the Torah describes the, the power of Torah as stronger than that of honey, because even if a person's nature was inherently evil, the process of learning Torah, of being engaged with mitzvot, turns them into an entirely different person. The, the uh, traditional thing that we say around Rosh Hashanah is that our, our sins can be turned into merits. So that honey seems to have um, some of that quality to it, that capacity for transformation. And therefore, that's part of why we um, eat it on Rosh Hashanah. Um, Another reason why it's matim or appropriate for that time of year is that the Torah um, uses the term edah um, very infrequently. Uh, you know, communities are called edah. Um, the congregation of Israel is called edat Israel, But um, the bees are actually called edah, edat devorim, a congregation. And it's interesting because in, in modern times, both the ants and the bees um, have been called by scientists um, superorganisms, meaning that they are um, multi-layered, complex social societies um, that function in um, a sort of a, a democratic, a, a, there's a hierarchy to them and that um, even though you might think of each ant as an individual, and there is some truth to that, um, they really are operating as one unit. Um, these kind of, the, the kind of connotations of this uh, and awareness of sort of the superorganismness of the bees um, is apparent in actually the Torah's name for the bees, which is divorim right, from the word dibor, speech, and divarim, which means words, as well as the very name of um, one of the woman leaders um, in our tradition, the judge divorah. And obviously naming a woman judge divorah um, may hint that 
um, perhaps in our tradition, there was an understanding that the, um, the leader of the hive, the, the uh, apparent, the, the one who had majesty was actually a female. Um, uh, in, in, um, generally, it was thought that the, the queen of the hive was actually a king and it was sort of radical and, and unimaginable when it was first suggested that it's actually a queen that leads the hive. Um, the hive is somewhere around 40,000 up to 100,000 bees acting as if they have one mind and one heart and making decisions through a step-by-step um, -step sort of democratic process. Um, without ego involvement, we could use some more of this in, in human leadership. Um, and um, if you're interested in learning more about this, I highly recommend um, Dr. Seeley at Cornell, um, his book called Honeybee Democracy. But in any case, on Rosh Hashanah, we are called to act as one hive, um, so to speak, coronating um, Hashem as our judge and creator. Um, so uh, Devarim Rabbah 1.6 um, um, seems to uh, play on this when it says, um, these are the Devarim, the words. Um, the Holy One said, my children are like Devarim, like bees, as they conduct themselves after Tzadikim and after the prophets just as bees follow after their queen and build one generation upon the next. So um, uh, another thing, I'm jumping down a, a paragraph. These are the divarim, the words, just as the bee has honey for her master and a sting for other. So to the words of Torah, they are medicine of life to Israel and a medicine of death to those who worship idols. So anyway, so that's, a, that's another reason why Rosh Hashanah is a time that's appropriate for honey. Um, one of the interesting um, texts, things that's interesting is that the, the congregational and, and structured nature of, of hive life um, and the fact that the, the physical combs of honey that comprise the hive are are parallel to each other and that the brood, the developing bees was in the center. This was probably something that was understood even in antiquity um, because this very famous text about finding um, bees and honey in the carcass of a lion and Shimshon straight, scraping out the honey, um, it's probably reflecting that the carcass of a lion would be made up of ribs that were parallel to each other and pretty much the same distance apart. And that's actually just the way that bees like to build their hive. So it wasn't just that it was a carcass, but it was also kind of an inviting structure because um, that's how bees will set up their combs in whatever protected area they find. Finally, um, another reason that honey is appropriate for Rosh Hashanah um, is that it is actually literally a reflection of the blessings of the previous year. In other words, um, the, the honey from this year that we have in the fall relies on the, um, the spring growth that comes from rain and sunshine and also the fact that there are bees that survive the winter relied on the fall of the previous year having been a season of blessings so that the bees would have had enough honey to survive the cold of the winter. So that literally when we put the honey in our mouth and say, may it be for a good and sweet year, we are physically tasting on our tongue the fact that the that last year was a year of blessing. And we are asking that once again, this coming year be a year in which there is again blessing. Um, I wanted to take a few minutes 
to look at the question of the kashrut, the kosher status of honey, um, because it, it's, it really is a curious thing. Um, and it's something that people really almost always will ask about. Um, so the Mishnah teaches that which emerges from a non-kosher animal is non-kosher. That which comes out of a kosher animal is kosher. Okay, so bear with me. This may sound a, a little bit gross, but you know, people back in the day have had uh, some pre-modern ideas of, of medicine, okay? So um, the Gemara in um, Bechorod Vav um, talks about the urine of horses and camels and is asking, um, can it, can, is it possible to use the urine of horses and camels um, for medicinal purposes, okay? Um, in other words, is this urine actually a product of the animal or is it basically water enters their body and water exits their body, okay? And it's just going through them, okay? Um, so <clears throat> Rav Sheshet is saying, you learned in the Mishnah, Shehayotzei mina tamei tamei, that which comes from a tamei animal is, tam is tamei. Okay, so the reason I'm bringing up this piece about um, donkey urine is because it's, it's actually related to um, the question of honey. Um, why is it related to honey? Um, because um, do we eat bees? Are bees kosher? I mean, normally we wouldn't choose to eat an animal that might sting us, but bees are Clearly, like they're they're flying insects, they're not kosher. Um, so there's there's a question, which is, you know, what about um, the kash root of of honey, right? Um, the Chachamim um, and Rav um, Yaakov uh, are discussing this, and basically, um, the Chachamim are taking the position, you know, that that when there's plant nectar um, that, that bees are consuming and then making into honey, um, it's basically, you know, water's coming into them, water's going out of them. But then of course the question is, well, what about bees legs? You know, what about bees wings and all these things that, that could be um, getting, getting into the honey? Um, you know, there used to be a belief that honey um, was just kind of a, like something that was made out of the pollen of the flower and didn't have anything to do with the innards of the bee. Um, the truth is now we know that um, there is a small amount of um, enzymes from the bee that plays some role in the, um, in the process of nectar being made into honey. Most of what needs to happen for nectar to become honey is that the bees have to act as AC professionals and they have to essentially fan enough of the water um, out of the nectar so that the nectar gets down to 18% um, water. And once it's 18% water, then it's honey. And um, it won't ferment, it'll just stay good forever. Um, but until it's 18%, it, it can ferment, which is um, not an experience that I would recommend <laughs> um, having that. So, um, so Rav Yaakov's position is that the reason that honey is permittable um, is because there's a gezerah takatuv. In other words, um, even though it is a product of the hive and, and you know, may have some of the bee in it, but the Torah specifically um, permits bee honey and that's why it's kosher. Um, that's Rav Yaakov's position. Um, 
Now, another question that comes up around bees and honey um, that I am often asked is the whole question of, you know, is it ethical to harvest honey? Um, doesn't it hurt the hive if you take their honey away? Aren't the bees making honey for themselves? Um, so one of the things that I like to share with people is that um, the, the product, the, the, the amount of honey that a hive can make is um, sort of like a real estate question. You know, how much is your property worth? Well, it depends where you are. It depends on the season. It depends on the broader economy. So too with the bees, um, if they're in a location where there are plenty of flowers and a year that has um, good weather, um, they will often make much, much more honey than they could possibly use for themselves. They need a certain amount of honey um, it varies based on location in order to survive the winter because that is their, that is their food, it's their energy source. Um, the other reason they need honey is because it's actually their insulation as well. Um, they, they build their homes kind of like we build our homes. Um, the honey above provides insulation. It's this thick, thick substance that holds temperature very well. And then they will also put three to four combs of honey on either side of the cluster. And then they cluster in the center under snow and they can survive just very comfortably like that as long as they have enough honey to keep them warm. Um, so interestingly, this Tosefta here says um, when purchasing honeycombs, one is not permitted to tear them out all of them at once. Rather, one must leave the outer two. And if only two honeycombs remain, then one is not allowed to touch them. Okay, so there was an understanding here in antiquity that the bees relied on the presence of the honeycombs in the hive over the rainy season. Um, and here's the another source from the Rashbam um, on Baba Batra um, saying, he says, after a bee colony has reproduced, so this would presumably be in the spring, spring either in Israel or anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, um, after a bee colony has reproduced and new swarms, meaning new potential colonies, each of them with a queen bee, have exited the hive, one may then claim the honeycombs. And in general, one must leave two combs in the hive during the winter rainy season. This is the time when it's too cold for the bees to be out collecting additional honey. This is when they are relying on their stores because basically those two combs are their pantry. You know, that's what they've got for the winter. Um, in order to sustain the remaining bees until the following spring. So there's, um, this is for me very moving um, as a, um, someone who is a, a Jewish foodie and um, an, an ethical animal care person um, in the Jewish community, it's um, very moving to see this rush bomb um, commenting here on Baba Batra that, that we don't have the right to allow this, to cause this hive to starve um, by taking away their winter honey. Um, so what does the term devash refer to? Um, uh, here, I'm gonna go to the second verse first. The Ketubot says, um, he saw those goats that were grazing beneath a fig tree and there was honey oozing from the figs and milk dripping from the goats and the two liquids were mixing together. And he said, this is the meaning of the verse, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it is broadly thought that the term devash generally refers to date honey or here fig honey, um, kind of fruit honey. Um, however, uh, 
there are also other sources, such as here Yechezkel 16.4, um, and in, in Devarim, where it says, Hashem suckled him, suckled the children of Israel with honey from the rock, okay? Honey from the rock is definitely referring to a wild beehive. Um, and moreover, um, just to put this in a little bit of archeological historical context, um, we know that uh, when B'nai Israel were slaves in Egypt, that at, at that time, um, there was already a practice of um, beekeeping in um, clay, uh, um, kind of uh, clay hives. And actually, <laughs> in a kind of nod to like, this is really early, um, the early moving of the hives, they used to put those hives on um, barges and move them um, up and down the Nile, following the flow of the honey. Meaning as plants were going into bloom, they would, they would move the hives closer to where the flowers were. Um, so those same kinds of, of ancient hives were actually found also um, in an archeological dig in the Beit Shan area. And there were literally hundreds of hives that were right in the center of that settled area of Beit Shan. Um, so this is just something that's really, really interesting to be aware of that um, the, the kind of practice of, of beekeeping is very ancient and it was, pretty worldwide and it was definitely um, in Egypt and in Israel. Um, so Devash does sometimes mean bee honey. Um, in terms of the question of the kash root of honey, one of the interesting things also that comes up is the question of like, what does Devash mean in terms of bee honey? Does it refer only to what we call honey? In other words, the the, um, the nectar that's, that's been sort of dehydrated into honey, or does Devash refer to everything that comes from a hive? Um, in, uh, in modern day Israel, um, it's more the latter position that tends to be held. In other words, um, royal jelly, which is produced, as I said before, from the, a gland in the head of the bee, is definitely not something that comes directly from flowers. It's definitely a product of the bee, um, but it has been um, permitted uh, by, by most authorities as um, permissible to consume, particularly for um, uh, health um, purposes. Um, moving on to um, Rachot 57b, um, the Gemara says there are five matters in our world which are one sixtieth of their most extreme manifestations. They are fire, honey, Shabbat, sleep, and a dream. The Gemara elaborates fire, our fire is one sixtieth of the fire of Gehenna. Honey is one sixtieth of man. Shabbat is one sixtieth of Olam Haba, sleep is one sixtieth of death, and a dream is one sixtieth of prophecy. I think this might be one of my most favorite quotes. There's just so much here. Um, but just sticking with our subject, so honey is one sixtieth of man. Um, man is almost the opposite of honey. And what I mean by that is, so mana, right, we all know that mana was uh, a real test of faith in the sense that it, you know, the few stories where people tried to keep it overnight, it would be, you know, roiling with maggots and there would be punish for, punishment for that. And it was all about um, something that was temporary and building one's capacity to trust in God, to be there day by day to sustain us. Um, whereas honey 
is actually the only substance on earth that we eat that will never go bad. They've actually taken honey out of um, tombs in Egypt that was thousand, that is thousands of years old and it's really in perfectly good condition, still totally edible. Um, so the question then is, you know, what is it exactly that is being found here to be um, the parallel between mana and, and um, honey. And, you know, it seems to me that they're, they're both about recognizing the eternal. In other words, the man gives us this tremendous pause to say, hey, we, we really are relying on Shem to recreate the world every day, to provide our food every day, um, and to trust in that. And honey as well is an encounter with the eternal. There is nothing, there's no other substance that um, you know, will never go bad, that is appropriate to Rosh Hashanah in that sense that you know, this is the time of year when we are davening for life and for renewal. And here's this substance that you know will will outlive and outlast even the the biggest trees in the world, even potentially you know the the rocks would get worn down before before honey would you know would would go bad. It just can keep forever. Um, so um, I've included some other sources here just for your. Um, interest uh, about, about honey. Um, one of them that I wanted to bring to your attention is from Sota. Um, it says, as Rav Sheshet would translate the words, as the bees do. So what does as the bees do mean? Um, it means just like the bees spread out and fly over the whole world and bring honey from the mountainous plants. Um, so, so the Jewish people also will you know, bring the word of Hashem from the four corners of the earth. So one of the interesting things about being a beekeeper that is different um, than other sorts of uh, livestock management is that that other animals can be um, confined. You know, you can you can raise fish in a pond. You can, you know, put a fence around cattle. But with honeybees, they will fly as far as um, ten miles if they need to from their hive in order to collect the nectar and the pollen that they need and the water. Um, they say it takes one cell of pollen, one cell of nectar, and one cell of water within a hive to raise a new baby bee. Um, so that's actually a lot of resources. Um, it's a lot of resources. And it takes about 100,000 flowers um, of nectar in order to produce one teaspoon of honey. Um, the one teaspoon of honey that we, you know, dip that apple into on Rosh Hashanah um, reflects a vast, vast um, amount of flowers, a vast amount of blessing. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, um, that I experience as a beekeeper is that um, there, there's a dependency that I have as a beekeeper on the, the whole community um, caring for the earth and keeping it safe for pollinators. If a neighbor, even a couple miles away, sprays some kind of pesticide on a tree's flowers during the daytime and the bees are flying there, that poison can very well be carried back to my hive. And then I could find a dead hive the next day or you know, a month later, find a much, much weakened colony. Um, on the other, on the flip side, if people decide that that rather than um, maintaining sort of flowerless 
Camelons um, in their yards that they are going to plant um, native flowers that support all sorts of um, uh, native life and also help clean the water and help lock carbon down um, and fight climate change that those, those sorts of land management decisions um, have a really substantial impact, especially when they're multiplied by a community on the welfare of my hives. I can see the capacity for growing more bees and, and growing more honey, um, producing more honey increase when there is um, a, a changeover of highly managed lawns um, to wildflowers. It really does make a difference. Um, so um, the, other, the other piece that I wanted to share was a little bit about um, an, another time of our year besides Rosh Hashanah, when we talk about um, milk and honey. And that of course is the time of, um, of Shavuot. Um, uh, when we think of the land of milk and honey, some of these sources are looking at that, um, you know, whether that's goat's milk, whether that is date honey. Um, I, of course, as a beekeeper, I'm thinking about actual honey um, from bees. But one of the pieces that, that I like to bring to folks' attention is that um, the way that we manage to have the milk of whether it's goats or cattle or sheep um, at the time of Shavuot is that that relies again on the plants blossoming um, in Israel around Tubishvad. Here, I'm in the Midwest, um, wherever you're joining from, if it's California or Mountain Time, Arizona, um, you know, there are, each area has its time of year when the spring plants grow and produce their nectar and, and actually their flowers and seeds, which are protein sources for the mammals. And because those mammals have that nutritious food that nature produces, they are able to calve and have their babies and raise them. And they start producing milk. And that milk, um, after those babies have enough, and if people continue to milk those animals, that milk is what allows um, us, were we more directly connected to our food animals, that would be what allows us to make cheesecake or have cheese and dairy on Shavuot. It's because of that, that plethora, that overflow of, of the divine um, gift of bounty that comes through the, the birthing of the mammals. And that flowering of the spring and that blessing of renewal is what also allows for the production of honey from those flowers. And there's a beautiful sort of weaving and intersection because the, the mammals need those flowers to become seeds. In other words, they need them for protein. And so the bees go to the flowers and pollinate and that produces both the protein to support those mammals to, to then nurse their young and eventually produce um, cheese for us on Shavuot. Um, and, it, and it also allows the bees to have enough energy to be able to produce um, honey from the hive and also honey for Shavuot. So just before I um, take any questions, I um, just wanna uh, thank the Valley Beit Midrash team, um, Pam and, and Rabbi Shmuley again for, for hosting me. I would be um, remiss if I didn't point out that um, perhaps the, the purest way to um, light our candles for Hanukkah this time of year um, is to utilize another product of the hive, which is of course beeswax. And again, in, in the harvesting of beeswax, um, bees often do make um, too much wax or um, just put wax in parts of the hive that they don't really need it in. And so um, it's possible to sustain, sustainably harvest wax. I have a lot of wax in my in storage right now. Um, and it does make um, beautiful, actually, uh, air cleaning um, 
these wax candles. Um, uh, so um, we thank the one who gives us light at this time of year and made these miraculous bees that do all these amazing things that, that um, help to sustain us and to sustain our, our food chain and sustain our world. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Amalia. Amazing. Um, so um, great. So friends, if you want to unmute yourselves and weigh in with some questions, we'd love to hear from you. Hi. 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 I keep bees here in Maryland and have for many, many years. Oh, wonderful. Um, and I frequently uh, go to uh, go to the synagogue and talk at the, the kids at Rosh Hashanah, and I go to the elementary schools and I talk and all that kind of business. And uh, but this has greatly, greatly expanded my knowledge, and uh, uh, this is just absolutely wonderful. I'm not aware of another talk of of similar dimension. This is terrific. Um, will thank you very, very much. Will oh. your talk? Will your talk be available, uh, recorded elsewhere? And are your notes available for us to print out online? Um, I did share the sources and the Valley Bait Midrash um, would you know, be, I'm, I'm happy for them to be shared. And um, thank you for your work as an educator and advocate. It's, it's so important. And it's, it's a lot of the work that I do in the Jewish community. Um, you know, we, uh, we really, if we don't have pollinators, we will not be able to continue having human society either. Um, and so it's, it's really, really important. So thank you, Jim. Um, and please let me know if I can be of any further support um, to you. Amalia, where do you keep bees? Um, I'm in Northeast Ohio. Um, I am working to launch um, a, a national Jewish um, bee conservancy project. Um, I have a vision that, that every Jewish community should be doing um, something to help with the, the pollinator crisis. And um, you know, a significant piece of getting that going is gonna be um, the support and awareness of, of folks who really understand how important um, pollinator conservation is and, and to appreciate that, that, you know, it's also in the ethos of our Torah. Like it's, that's part of why- Well, I think that's the, that's the big that. thing. People are right. afraid yeah. of bees. They're afraid of getting, they're afraid of getting stung and all that kind of business and the bees, but you've, you've turned this, this talk, uh, uh, you've, you've turned, you've turned it on their heads in a sense that you've made this a, a particular mitzvah. Mm -hmm. uh, not all the mitzvahs are easy. And this is uh, keeping bees is not an easy mitzvah. Yeah. But, but clearly, clearly, there are enormous amount of, uh, of Torah and Talmud and Drash and the whole shebang here. Uh, this was just this was just great. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not from but I, I do a fair bit of, uh, of teaching as well. I teach Musar, and uh, I'm involved in some other Jewish education programs. And I've often thought of bees in terms of the midot and mm -hmm. how, they, uh, how they conduct their lives and so forth. But uh, uh, Amelia, I hope you post your email there. Or whatever. I see it now coming up, but thank you very much. I, oh, I so look welcome. forward to, to being in touch with you, getting this information. And if there's some kind of Jewish beekeepers association Sign me up. This is great. I'm really excited. <laughs> okay. Very yeah, excited. Give me your contact information. I'll be happy to. It's interesting. I've actually, I've talked a lot of people out of beekeeping um, because I actually don't think that we need more beekeepers. I think, I think beekeeping is a wonderful um, thing to do in order to um, experience the awesomeness of Hashem's creation there's a certain way in which looking into a beehive, I feel like must somehow parallel the experience of Hashem looking down on our planet. You know, like seeing this, this wholeness um, of Hashem's creation. But I really feel that as, um, as uh, Shomrei Adama, as those, as people who are commanded to, to preserve and sustain the planet, what we really need to do is we need to be out there hustling for the 
to, to create and build a world which can sustain bees. We don't actually need to keep bees. <laughs> they can keep themselves pretty well, um, but they can't do much about us um, taking away so much of the habitat um, that, that is needed for you know, the sustaining of, of life on Earth. Other questions or comments? Joyce. Thank you so much. I would also love a copy if if that's possible of your notes. <clears throat> um, I, I I don't speak Hebrew. I'm just learning. Uh, you know, I'm kind of old, but always Jewish, of course. And I I see things everything as a metaphor. I'm a storyteller, uh -huh. so I see everything as a story. And it, it, and I think what you're saying is so critically important. It just it just came to me about, you know, when you said how Hashem looks down and maybe sees us all, you could just see that vision. And I'm wondering if um, you thought of of maybe a children's book or something for children, little children that be, lets them see that vision um, in the way that you're explaining it, not that we should be keepers but how do we create, I, I wrote that down, how do we create a world that can sustain bees? And I think that's the same, maybe I'm thinking, I don't know, it's the same as being Jewish. You know, how do we create a world that sustains the honey of Jewish people, of what we bring, the sweetness to the world, as opposed to only seeing you know, the world may be only seeing through one lens, we open up the world to see the beauty and sweetness and to allow us to fly and pollinate. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you know, I don't think in literal terms, I, I don't, I, I, th I think all metaphor, but a simple book for little children mm -hmm. that may be in that way um, with, of course, illustrated, that that could awaken something in them very early in life and and maybe then when they do light the menorah maybe they could use the beeswax and it, in other words it's you know it continues on in some kind of a tradition yeah so i don't know i'm just rambling but that's yeah, <laughs> I, I think i think that way and it's really beautiful yeah thank you um, Joyce, there's a lot of books out there on uh, bees for little kids, uh, you know, the, the thick paged books that are for kids under one and older kids as well, their pop-ups and all kind of stuff. But I'm not aware that there's any place that, that, that connects the Yiddishkeit to, uh, to bees. And I, uh, uh, I think that's just... I mean, because I, I, you know, I think the pollination story is pretty, is pretty well advertised. It can always be advertised more, no question about it. But the idea of the bees as a, as a message in teaching Torah, is, um, yeah, is is, is 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 not common. That's not common. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can get the step to the pollination to the to the people who are interested in in. Uh, I mean, you, you go to a bunch of uh, uh, rabbis and talk and, and, and knowledgeable people, uh, pollination, not so much, but if you can teach them, you can teach them that through this vehicle, that's a different story or teach this vehicle through that. I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a unique, unique story here. Of I see we have a question from Nika just before her question. Um, I want to let folks know that Pam put in the chat on the side, uh, Rabbi Arya's, um sources, so if you want to access resources, the PDF is in the chat over there. And Pam also shared the link where you can find the recordings after. So feel free to do that. Yes, Nika. Oh, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for allowing me to attend us. I have a number of Jewish friends who sent me this link because I am a bee educator and uh -huh. an urban farmer. And so I'm a beekeeper. And my mission is to train women and people of color and in, in, in marginalized communities uh, the importance of bees in our community and kind of create um, a community of bee stewards. 
um, to provide safe to provide safe spaces for them to be. Um, I do train again women to be beekeepers, but my mission overall is basically to educate our communities on how we can um, best provide a, an, a productive environment for bees um, because they do so much for us. And thinking about, I wanted to do this or attend this event because um, beekeeping is something that I, or spirituality and beekeeping is something that I absolutely want to add into our programming. And because I'm reaching a wide range of women in different communities, I want to be able to provide them with as much information as I can. And I will say that I've looked, I've looked around and, and asked about um, different faiths and their approach to bees and how that plays into their spirituality. And this is the first time I, I actually have gotten to be a part of a discussion like this and how it fits into um, your faith. And so thank you so much for doing this. Um, uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this. Um, even though I am not a part of the Jewish community, I very, am very respectful of your teachings and um, I love the way that you guys pass along um, through generations. Um, that's something that we've kind of lost my people um, in the process of being in this um, country. And so um, thank you so much for doing this and thank, thank you for allowing me. Thank you for what you're doing. It's such critical work. And I, I would actually appreciate it if you wouldn't mind reaching out to me um, off uh, screen because I'd like to talk with you, follow up on a few things there. Um, yes. But I also do just want to mention um, here in, in my area, um, you might want to look up Akron Honey Company. Um, it's it's uh, the CEO is um, a musician who's um, also does a lot of education and is also an African-American man and um, is interested in, in raising up um, the community of Akron through his work. Uh, um, and I can also connect you. Please, please, Amazing. thank you, I would love Amazing. that. Rob, Amalia, a question I have. Um, in comparison to, um, to the, some of the mass, mass industrial honey production industry, um, what's some of the cruelty involved in that approach as, a pro, as opposed to a welfare approach? Um, great question. Um, so I'm I'm loath to um, I'm loath to critique other beekeepers, um, but what I will say is that um, the, the the mass industrial farming system that we have developed here in this country um, needs uh, very intensive commercial. Um, beekeeping in order to uh, have pollination happen. Um, so we've got a really tricky, we've got a really tricky situation here um, to kind of transition out of that. But that being said, I think that um, there are really creative possibilities when, when we ask, you know, even farmers with very large monoculture farms can plant areas um, rows that are there for the pollinators to be able to, you know, get nutrition besides the one single kind of nectar and pollen that's available from the monocrop. So that's an important practice. Um, it's also really important to, on a policy level, advocate for, um, you know, equal support at, at a minimum for people that are doing sustainable farming um, as opposed to um, factory farming um, oftentimes, ironically, the people who are doing sustainable farming don't get governmental monies, whereas those people who are planting soy and corn en masse do um, get incentivized. So this is work that actually really ties to, um, to the farm bill. Um, and I, and um, I would just mention the work of um, Chazon, uh, which is has done important educational work around the farm bill, but it's a it's a huge thing that that um, impacts um, our whole nation in terms of farming and and just generally speaking, 
the what happens to you know when you see like sue sue bee honey or something you know in the store um these large commercial brands um like other things in the american food system the value is um having things remain shelf stable and um just as it's the case with most things that are where shelf stability is the highest value. Also with honey, when shelf stability is the highest value, what people wanna avoid is having honey crystallize, which means it, it becomes a more solid form. Um, and so to prevent crystallization, um, honey is overheated, it is strained, the pollen that, that makes it distinctive um, and traceable is often removed from it. There was a whole expose on what's called funny honey, meaning that a lot of the honey that's sold as American honey is not honey. It's not from here. Um, a lot of it has been um, has had byproducts mixed into it, like corn syrup and, and other things. It's not pure. It's been overheated, so the health benefits are no longer there. That doesn't per se harm the bees, but it harms us. Um, you know, honey really does have health benefits. Um, mm -hmm. It is a, a terroir product, meaning that it, it has the taste of the land that it comes from um, if it is not tampered with. And so one of the important things um, to do to support um, uh, sustainable beekeeping is to buy locally and offer, if you can afford it, to pay extra for honey. Um, there's a dramatically different culture of, of um, respect for the whole field of beekeeping in Europe um, than there is here in, in Europe. Um, it, there are countries where if you say that a honey is a from a particular crop of flowers and it's not, they actually test it for that pollen. And the first time you get a warning with a fine, and if they see you messing around the second time, you go to jail um, because honey is really viewed as a, as a medicine um, and you, you can't mislead people about that. Um, so I, you know, I, I would that we would move even a little bit in that direction um, in this country. Um, and thank you for the, for the question. You, if you want your honey to crystallize because that means that it's still raw and natural and hasn't been um, abused by being. Amazing. I see we have time. One last question here from Myra. Yes. Hi, thank you. I'm just reaching behind me to show you a couple of things. So um, honey makes a great gift. And um, this is a wedding favor, a little jar of honey that I can't stand to eat because it's five years old. I'm sure it'll still be good in 2000 years. Yeah. And this is um, a local honey grower, an Israeli man family that makes honey and all kinds of products with honey. Um, I mean, upstate New York. And so they're making like hand lotion and all kinds of chapsticks and all kinds of incredible things. Um, and, and I just had a, a one quick question that might be controversial, which is you talked a little bit about the kosh root of honey. Yes. Um, and I'm curious whether, so in addition to this local honey beekeeper, um, there are many others. And, you know, do we need to have a hacksher on honey? Um, it's a controversial question because I'm sure there are some people that will say we do, but I don't know why. Yeah, um, you know, raw honey um, does not need a hexure is kind of the, the bottom line. Um, there are, there are um, you know, people who, as with other things, are concerned that there be a hexure on them, uh, on honey, but the, the bottom line is that it doesn't, raw honey doesn't need a hexure. Excellent. Thank, thank you so much for this interesting talk. It really, um, it, it, as everyone said, it's an unusual compilation of all kinds of threads of knowledge. So thank you. Baba Malia, do you want to offer any closing comments before we close? Um, uh, I just um, wanted to um, just 
thank you all for coming and bless you with the, the light of Hanukkah and, and thank you for caring to also bring the, the light of the bees um, into, into the world. Um, amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for this incredible session. Thank you all for your participation. We hope you'll join us for other coming, upcoming Valley Bay Midrash learning almost every day. Have a great rest of your day and Hanukkah Sameach to all who observed. All the best. <laughs>